Welcome, everybody. I'm joined by Arjun Bilal, uh, a great friend of ours. In fact, um, Arjun, I think you were our first guest on our first podcast. Um, and uh, as Brian said earlier, it really has enhanced your career, which uh, <laughs> we have received no gifts and no gratitude <laughs> for, which is surprising. Uh, nevertheless, we've invited you back because of your uh, excellent work that you're presenting um, this year. Arjun, do you want to introduce yourself quickly and just talk um, um, about your about the work you did? Uh, so I am a medical oncologist and I directed GU program at NYU and uh, I do bladder cancer research. So Arjun, talk about this, the, your abstract about this Induce One study. It's a, it's a drug and a mechanism that's probably not familiar to most. So maybe you could start with that and then just give us a summary of the data. Sure. So ICOS stands for the inducible T-cell co-stimulatory receptor. It's a member of the CD28 IG receptor superfamily. Um, it was discovered uh, quite a while ago, but I think probably close to a decade ago. It's a pharmacodynamic biomarker of actually uh, targeting anti-CTLA-4. So initial work actually done actually by Pam Sharma a while ago found that it's actually you know, upregulated on the surface of T-cells when you uh, target CTLA-4. And it's a it's a T cell agonist, and you know the the science behind it, the theory behind it is that if we target some of these agonistic receptors on T cells, we can actually further drive anti tumor T cell responses against tumors. And uh, companies have actually been working on this pathway for a while. Um, Jones Therapeutics was one; they they had a drug. I, I don't know that you know they made a lot of progress in in getting the drug to demonstrate clinical efficacy, but GSK developed a drug called philodilimab, and you know we we at NYU led you know their phase one dose escalation dose expansion study this broad program called Induce One, um, and what I presented at ASCO were the cohort expansion study for the urethral cancer patient population, which included two cohorts, one group. Uh, which was the monotherapy cohort. This is the patient population with uh, advanced disease, heavily pretreated, PD-1 experienced um, with monotherapy with philodilimab. And then the other cohort, which was the 2B, which was the patients who were pretreated but, but PD-1 naive. And this was philodilimab in combination with pembrolizumab. So Arjun, let's start just by going back a time. It's essentially uh, an agonist resulting in um, a, a in T cell activation. Is there any idea of how that process of T cell activation occurs? Is it a balance between T reg cells and T effector type cells, or is it specifically targeting one population? So this is specifically targeting one population, which is that you're really targeting the effector T cell population. And I, ideally, exclusively just that. So, you know, when we think about the whole cascade of priming and activation, antigen-presenting cells, uh, T cells, uh, prime them against specific tumor-specific antigens, um, and then those activated T cells are now driven against tumors, and then they will give an offshoot of memory T cells. Now, what we hope is that those uh, activated T cells upon um, you know, uh, you know, interaction with the tumor cell, they can be further driven to target those tumor cells with, uh, uh, you know, engagement with an agonistic uh, uh, antibodies that's going to target ICOS. Um, but this does not have any, as theoretically, should not have any effect on any of the suppressive immune populations. This is really uh, supposed to target the effector population. And is there a phase one data? Have you got the dose of the drug right? Um, I mean, yes. I mean, so they... Levels. 
so um, 0.3, one mg per kg. And so they tested a variety of dose levels um, and they settled out um, at both. And we tested both a 0.3 and one mg per kg. And 0.3 mg per kg was the dose level that we settled on. There are consequences to overdosing because you can develop you know, T-cell exhaustion uh, by overdosing the agonistic molecule. So you, have to, you do have to get it just right. And are there biomarkers to show that you've got it just right? So I'm not sharing some of that data and GSK has, has not, we're, we're probably going to put it in the manuscript. So I don't have that data ready on hand to speak to it, at least not certainly during this podcast. Let's go to the monotherapy clinical activity and the adverse mm-hmm. event profile. What about that monotherapy cohort to start with? What did you show? So essentially in the monotherapy cohort, we had 14 patients that were treated um, these were all heavily pretreated, platinum experience, PD-1 antibodies, and a variety of others in, in some cases. Um, and, and, and the activity, I have to be honest, is, is modest. But what we did see is clear activity, at least in one patient here with a, a partial response. A patient with um, visceral disease involving um, fairly sizable lung metastasis, which I describe in our presentation an 81-year-old gentleman with a fairly large lingular metastasis that responded quite well, uh, durable response up to 36 weeks out and into treatment, um, and then of a, of a ultimately progressed. And so yeah, it was one a, partial a response. Tangential question about sure. monotherapy activity in a drug. Maybe you don't expect a lot of monotherapy activity, but you want to you wanna test it anyway for a variety of reasons. What, just from a drug development standpoint, how much? I guess how much stock do you put in activity or lack thereof, or is the plan all along combinations with PD-1 or CTLA-4 for the mechanistic reasons you mentioned? Yeah, this is the challenge in, in drug development in general with IO-based therapies is that, you know, mm-hmm. the, the eventual development strategy tends to be combination with PD-1 and CTLA-4. However, I think, I think most of us want to see at least some evidence of monotherapy activity before we get too excited because at the end of the day, you want to see that you're engaging the immune system and that the immune system is leading to an anti-tumor immune response. And so to me, to show this activity is proof of concept. Now, the fact that it's one response out of 14 tells us that maybe this activity is not going to be you know, earth shattering, but to right. see a visceral response in a patient like this is noteworthy. And if you didn't see it, would, would biomarker activity be enough? You know, if you show effects on T cells or whatever the appropriate biomarkers, but just general question, not even for this drug. I'm just wondering, because like you say, it is a challenge in developing sort of add on immune therapy. It's not enough for me. And unfortunately, I think that was kind of the, the nature of immunotherapy for years until, you know, the first generation of checkpoint antibodies kind of really hit the hit the scene. Yeah, so I agree with that. I think the principle of bringing these two drugs together, neither of which have very much activity, and you suddenly have a, a synergistic explosion of activity, seems uh, we haven't shown that in, um, in, in bladder cancer, in fact, in any tumor type with these immune therapy drugs that I've seen. And there's something called Fermi's paradox, which is actually about life from the universe with all these billions. <laughs> oh, boy. With all Here these billions of planets and, and universes. <laughs> this is why Arjun hasn't come back in a hundred podcasts. <laughs> well, no, this is important, right? Because with all these billions of universes and planets, 
how come we don't see life or how, how come we haven't been visited by extraterrestrial life? You know, probability suggests it should be out there. And it's the same sort of principle is if it was out there, how come it's so quiet? If there were these synergistic combinations out there, we would know by now because so many people are testing them. So I think the point that Arjun's making that's absolutely right is we have to have monotherapy activity. Otherwise, we would because if, if we did have these synergistic dynamic duets put together god knows we've been testing them for long enough periods of time and it's been awfully quiet i mean look the, the story with ido is very telling right mm-hmm. we we made a lot out of epec atostat and and look what happened in the randomized studies so either you put your money where your mouth is and run the randomized studies or we stop putting too much weight on these single arm trials of combinations and say look oh this is doing much better than we would expect with monotherapy pd1 and i think most of us look at that data with a lot of skepticism nowadays so so talk about the combo data talk about the combo cohort then the activity and, and how and specifically how you interpret it in light of what you might expect from pember alone right and, and that's exactly it so I, I actually put much more weight on the monotherapy data so to be clear so the monotherapy was one make per kg of philodilimab the Combo data was 0.3 mg per kg, and Pembro was dosed at two mig, uh, 200 milligrams every three weeks. And the response rates in the uh, combination cohort data um, clearly show that it's about what you would expect. The response rate was about 22%, no different than we would expect in the second-line treatment refractory setting with, um, uh, with Pembro alone. Uh, and it's durable, and that's what you would expect. So um, I don't make too much out of that. I, I really, you know, I think the the basis for this and the reason I think it was selected for oral, oral abstract is really is the monotherapy data to show single agent activity for a novel checkpoint. This is an agonistic molecule um, and activity in a visceral patient. I mean, I think that that's what's really the, the attractiveness. Adverse event so, profile. So um, that's you know, so overall, well tolerated. Um, so, you know, in our presentation, we are careful to say that immune related adverse events formally from a data collection standpoint were not evaluated. But, you know, when we look back, the uh, overall rates of treatment, low grade, low, uh, low frequency, very few grade three and fours um, and potential immune etiology were low. So um, not much added on top of what we would expect with Pember alone. And certainly monotherapy was really well tolerated. So, so I have a, I have a- Two-part question. One is sort of, you know, generically sort of next steps, given everything we just said about combo and monotherapy. And given what you said about um, potential relevance with CTLA-4 targeting, is are there plans to, to combine with a CTLA-4 inhibitor? Not that I'm aware of. Um, so the combination cohort, you know, so, so there, there is some, some, data, some information that is publicly available, which is that the first part of the GSK ICOS program to launch uh, was the Induce 3 and 4 program, which was a head and neck randomized mm-hmm. trial of Pembro with and without um, the, uh, the philodilimab study in head and neck. Um, there was a press release that they, uh, the close, they closed that study uh, based on an interim analysis. The IDMC evaluated the data based on response um, uh, which was the interim analysis, um, and they decided not to move on with that trial. Now, the implications of that for the broader program is not yet clear. Uh, GS, GSK will continually uh, evolve, and that's kind of the company line at the moment, which is um, look at the program as a whole as they collect more biomarker data from that study as well as more follow-up from the current phase one. Um, hopefully by next year, it'll be more clear in terms of what their plans are. Mm-hmm. And are there any biomarker data in terms of, you know, 
um, what you can say, what's, what's promising, or is that, is that revealing at all in terms of where to take it next steps? So in, in, in the induce one study and what I did present is some data with regard to immunistic chemistry in, um, looking at basically, uh, the PDL one positive cohort and the ICOS positive cohorts. So they are looking at a proprietary antibody, looking at measuring uh, both PDL1 status and ICOS uh, expression status in tumors that are collected at baseline. And essentially, and, 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 and again, post hoc review, small data sets, retrospective, these are always problematic. And we all know that PDL1 status is problematic to begin with. Uh, but essentially, what it, what it did find is that if you looked at the so called double positive patients, those in those who are both PDL1 positive and ICOS positive at baseline, it did associate uh, with improved survival as compared to those who were double negative. And so, you know, but that's not surprising. I think, you know, when you when you see higher expression levels of the target protein of interest, you know, that's generally associated with, you know, higher likelihood of response, and maybe that translates to better survival. But we know that these immune-based biomarkers are highly inconsistent and, yeah. and, and poorly repl replicable. Rod, Arjun, if I put it to you that I kind of look at this data and say, I'm not thrilled by it. Um, and um, you might come back to me and say, Tom, actually, I think most of your data I'm not thrilled by either. And, and I, would <laughs> I, I would. I, and I agree with you. But it's, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I'd accept yeah. that. And so yeah. I guess one <laughs> I need to ask you is, is what is the sum of our effort with immune combination therapy in urothelial cancer now? We've had a lot of different goes at it. Are we wasting our time? Are we not just, or are we doing it wrong? Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. I actually had, a, had another interview recently um, regarding a broader topic of immunotherapy um, with the Washington Post of all, of all people. But, but my, They're I mean, not the quite as well known as us. They, they quote <laughs> us all the time. Yeah, we, keep saying, right. we keep saying no, but, I, yeah, but it's fine. <laughs> I know, I know. But, but the broader question was asked about kind of the immunotherapy and, and, and are we hitting in kind of an inflection point of checkpoints? And I think the answer is yes, based on what is currently available. Are we in hitting an inflection point of both enthusiasm and the current drugs that we have? And perhaps we are. So, um, and that just, that goes beyond just urothelial cancer, right? Um, and maybe there's a next generation of perhaps cellular-based therapies that we're waiting for on the horizon over the next five to 10 years. And, and we know there are a lot of biotechs that are invested in cars and whether they're car T's and car NK's and other adoptive cell therapies, maybe that's the next generation that we should be looking for. Um, Arjun, what do you think about CTA4 activity in urothelial cancer? The Danube trial looked okay, um, yeah. but was negative for various reasons to do with statistical design. And some of the IPNEVO data also looks okay in pattern refractory disease that Matt and Pam have done. What's your, what's your take? Do you think we just do, because that's when I said, are we doing it wrong? Do you think there is a role of CTA4 and we just haven't got Absolutely. there Absolutely. I do. That's the one study that I think is going to be the difference. So if, if we were to fast forward, let's say three years, three, four years from now, I think it's EV Pembro for most patients, but for a pure IO uh, uh, type of role, Ipinevo, uh, or if we kind of redo Dervatremi, a higher dose CTLA-4 plus PD-1 absolutely has a role in frontline bladder cancer. And I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about 901 for that reason. Yeah, interesting. Um, for, for, for that very reason. I think it's going to be very similar to what we do in kidney right now, which is, um, you know, it's excitinib or well, let me rephrase, you know, vegafartikai plus PD-1 for some yeah. patients. It's CTLA-4 plus PD-1 for other patients. It'll be very similar. And it's an immune-based doubling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Immune I think we're going to see something very similar in, in bladder. Do you want to take the last two minutes and just talk about the chemo RT? Yeah. The, the abstract? Yeah. 
so so that's the the I guess my morning presentation Perfect. on Monday will be about that. So this is kind of a a, a, a a this is a bit of a cliche, but it's a labor of love that we started back in 2014, 2015, when we had this concept that you know Merck was very excited about supporting their MISP and saying, "Come with us with concepts." that we wanted to do was bladder preservation, um, hyperfractionated radiation schedules were all the rage as immune synergizing. So what we put together was um, a pembrolizumab in combination with a four weeks bladder only radiation schedule with twice weekly gemcitabine. The idea then was gemcitabine, low dose twice weekly, great for patients, maybe immune synergistic, mouse models suggested depleting MDSCs. A lot of good hand waving made that trial really attractive, and um, and we tr designed the study to collect uh, you know tissue and blood in just the right way, and uh, you know five six years later we treated fifty four patients and um, and most of the patients were patients who elected bladder preservation, so we were not um, focusing just on those who were um, non poor surgical candidates. And the data basically shows that, and we updated it, by the way. So what's in the abstract and, and what's in our final presentation is a little bit different. I apologize. But um, what we're seeing is in the early analysis, so this is about 15, about, about close about, about 15 months follow-up, is that our one-year bladder intact disease-free survival rate is about 88% in the efficacy cohort. And uh, if we look at the entire cohort of 54 patients, it's about 89%. Treatment's very well tolerated. Pa patients did develop immune-related toxicities, but well managed with steroids. Um, and this is the basis, you know, that I took to Merck for the basis for Keynote 992, which is the ongoing randomized phase three, which includes hypofractionated radiation, bladder only, RT. And what's that randomization? Just uh, if you just expand on that study. Yeah, sure. So also, SWOG-1806, I think, are two very pivotal studies. The broad concept is uh, bladder preservation therapy, um, so concurrent chemoradiation with or without immunotherapy. Um, in Keynote 992, it's either conventional radiation schedule of six weeks RT with concurrent uh, chemotherapy or uh, four weeks radiation schedule with concurrent chemo uh, chemotherapy. Your options include weekly cisplatinum, 5-FU mitomycin, or twice weekly gemcitabine. And uh, with immunotherapy in, in SWOG-1806, you have your choice of atezolizumab, and in 992, you have every six weeks pembrolizumab. And your data as it currently stands supports the, 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 the combination Let's hypothetically say that the data comes out and it shows that combination is better. Would that then challenge cystectomy altogether? Or do you think this will, this will always be a alternative and less attractive alternative uh, to cystectomy? So th that's the problem is that we'll never have a randomized trial of surgery versus chemo radiation. So it ends up being an issue of how we present our options to our patients and how our patients are actually presented options, right? And, and I just came out of a room 10 seconds ago 